Welcome to Now Next, the podcast which explores your meaningful now and your meaningful next. My name is Mary Claire, so when you hear this voice, it's Mary Claire's voice. My name is Sammy, and when you hear this voice, it also happens to be my voice. My name is Drew Tucker, and I'm just going to own that this is my voice, and trust that when you hear it, you'll realize that it is Drew speaking and not Sammy or Mary Claire, because you, dear audience, dear listeners, are an intuitive bunch, and we are thankful (laughs) that you are a part of the pod today. And now you know whose voice is whose. Sammy, what are we talking about today? Today, we are going to continue our exploration with our four faith formation, which is not a linear process. It's actually a cyclical process that goes from one circle to another and on a different map and on a different journey. So we really want to emphasize that not only is vocation something that each of us are exploring in different capacities and different ways in our lives, it's one that we're doing simultaneously alongside one another. Today we have with us Professor, soon to be Dr. Rachel Wren, who is the instructor of biblical studies at Trinity Lutheran Seminary Capital University and a PhD candidate at Emory University. She is also an ordained Lutheran pastor in the ELCA. Her academic interests include the Psalms, biblical emotions, preaching, and embodiment. The first part of her ministry was spent serving small towns and rural churches in Minnesota. Her husband is a Lutheran pastor in Marietta, Georgia, where they live with their two children and two cats. Today we are talking about discernment, which is one of these four Ds that we've been engaging in. And for us, discernment, we are using that word in a very particular kind of way because you hear in church and you hear in colleges and universities this word kind of thrown around. But the reality is we don't have a common definition or we don't have an easy understanding. So for us and what we are trying to do is use discernment that talks about simply as a process of prioritizing your opportunities. So we are discerning what we value. We are placing the opportunities, the skills, the knowledge we have in front of us, and then we're evaluating it, saying, what is most important to me? What are the things that are at the heart of my core values? So the hope is that we're going to get away from that kind of confusion about discernment as a kind of amalgamous process and turn towards something of clarity. Now, we're not trying to remove mystery in that. That is so, so important because God is mysterious. God is transcendent. God is beyond. So there's always going to be things that we can't control and that we can't fully know. But in discernment, what we're trying to do is emphasize what is accessible and the practices that invite that mysterious transcendent God into the process. I know for me, this has been something of a struggle, but also a joy, as there have been many things that came to me that were good opportunities, and I had to weigh good against good. It's really easy at times in our lives to say like, oh, well, I can eat this candy bar, or I can chew on this gravel. Like, and clearly, like, I'm not going to munch on limestone. That's not delicious. It's not nutritious. It's not anything I'm interested in. So I'm curious if any of y'all have a story of a time where you've had this kind of good on good comparison. You've had this discernment process where you realized, I have to choose something. I have a value. So I'm going to choose this good instead of another opportunity that is in front of me. 
Yeah, I do. Absolutely. I was not actually expecting to get into grad school the first time that I applied because I'd been out for so long. I'd been out of it for five years. So it's kind of like, let's take this big old arrow and shoot it into the woods and see if I hit anything. I did. And I got into two very, very different places. One of them, Emory, had this you know phenomenal faculty who were doing really interesting things in a part of the country that was fascinating to me and I'd never lived in before. And on the other hand, there was Princeton Theological Seminary, which also also had a really wonderful, fascinating faculty and had this fantastic setup for young families. And so it was like comparing, you know, the best apple you've ever had with the best orange you've ever had. And which one are you going to pick? You can only have one. I actually never knew the word discernment until I was invited to a discernment placement event and was like, what does discernment mean? How do I do this? So I went to the discernment placement event for the Young Adults and Global Mission Program and was offered the opportunity to serve in either the South African program or the Madagascar program. And again, that was a very hard like discernment process of figuring out where am I called? Not that one was better than the other and both opportunities were going to grow and shape me, but just kind of holding both intention and then listening to myself, kind of like what you were getting at, Pastor Drew. For me, it's more of the small things, just something as simple as in the past when it wasn't big pandemic time. Uh, it was a Friday night and I could either go hang out with a bunch of friends or I could stay in and just deciding which one like I was going to have fun either way or just be like, well, I'm already in my pajamas, so I'm just going to stay in. Something as simple as that. Discernment doesn't always have to be some big life-changing thing. It can just be those little decision-making processes as well. Right. And I think that's so important to lift up is that we actually use discernment a lot in our lives and we have almost codified it for only these massive decisions when we're in fact discerning in many ways every single day. So in these processes, I think part of what we're seeing, right, is listening to ourselves and our values, the things that we understand that are matter to us. This reality that, that you pointed out, Professor Ren, you've got these two great programs and that are very different. And so part of that process is there are very different goods. And sometimes because of what we are now and what we're called to be in the future, we lean toward one of those goods as a result of that. But also listening to God and God's values, right? There are things that are in us that aren't necessarily the way that we want them to be or that God needs them to be for the shaping of all things in God's image, right? And so we need to be attending to what is God up to as much as what might I want to be up to, but also listening to our community. One of the ways I hear God most clearly is through the voices of people like Mary Claire and people like Sammy and people like Professor Ren, because y'all are a part of our community here and speak love and life and hope into a whole host of places that need it so clearly. So I'm so so grateful for that. Sammy, I'm wondering how this connects some with our, our imagery for, for boats. Such a nice segue. Nice. Boats. Uh, all of the boats, water, baptism, we're here for it. Really, the discernment part of the 4D faith model is the cartographer stage. Actually taking the time and giving what like you've discovered space on a map. You maybe like discovered a bunch of maps and have been like, hmm, what do these maps mean? Like, I'm going to take these and carry them with me. But taking what you've been given and then drawing them out for yourself thinking about like, where do you want to go? What avenues do you want to take? What information is valuable for you to include on your map? And I think 
this kind of gets back to our conversation with our first guests, the Parkers, who told us a ton of things about the ways when they're going sailing, they have to discern what difference their sailboat needs when like they're navigating at night or during the day or like looking at their maps because if they choose the wrong map for the wrong time of day, it could go not super great and they could end up on like the side of an island. I think that is like really key in that discernment is just a place where we can hold things in tension and discover what we want on our maps, knowing there's probably and definitely other maps that exist. And so like we've had to discern whether we want to choose those maps or not. And I mean, we talked about last time, but tons of maps that have misplaced or incorrectly drawn out where the world is. It's just really important to remember that distorted maps are real. And so part of that is the discernment process. I know for me, I get really caught up jumping so quickly to the decision-making part of the 40 faith model when discernment can be this beautiful and magical time to include all of those things, knowing that discernment doesn't happen in a vacuum. There's like water that can pull and lead you in lots of different directions. And it's hard to navigate our priorities in that. And so like sometimes our pride gets in the way of our priorities. People's opinions for sure can do that. And knowing and recognizing horror stories of past explorers. And again, we want to name the major issues and sin of colonialism that have happened and like knowing we carry those in our backpacks, but moving forward because the gift of discernment is that it can lead us to new discoveries and into new paths where God is calling us. I feel like this image of a map, especially a distorted map, is so interesting because you could also talk about it as a subjective map. You know, it's like there's not one concrete reality that we're all trying to map. Everybody's map is, is a map of their reality. And what might be a mountain to some might be a, a level path to others. So this idea of using other people's maps and how we need to hold those lightly is such a great image. So now we are going to move into our interview portion with Professor Wren. As we previously stated, we're using discernment very specifically in this process to mean evaluating and prioritizing. When we have all this information that we've discovered, how do we figure out what it is we should really be paying attention to in that specific moment? Not that we won't pay attention to it later, but in the place that our feet are. So how does that match with your experience of discernment? It matches, I think, with a, a big part of how I've experienced discernment before. It's really a weighing process and a, a paying attention process. And I like that those are such active verbs, you know, evaluating and prioritizing, because like you said, it can feel so almost helpless to try to figure out how to choose between two things. And focusing on what you can do can be really empowering. I think the other half of discernment for me is, is there's a really necessary passive part of the process too, which I would call like listening and watching. Listening for where God is leading and, and watching for what God is doing. And I find that my discernment processes go the worst when I focus on the active to the exclusion of the passive, because it then it makes me think I'm the subject in this process upon whom all discernment depends. And that's an illusion. It's one of my favorite illusions that I go back to over and over again, but it's still an illusion. Can you describe your personal process of discernment a little bit more? Sure. Yeah. I have a very finely tuned process that I've, I've Feel like I've perfected. First and most important step is I freak out. And then the yeah. second step is I overfunction. I have a very good story about this. I'm right now finishing my dissertation, teaching for the first time. There's a global pandemic. And for the first six weeks of school, our two kids were in online school. So 
we were all in the same building. So the way that I overfunctioned there was by literally scheduling every hour of my week devoted to something. This is when I was gonna spend time with my children. This is when I'm going to grade. This is when all this kind of stuff. And of course, then you enter into the semester and the whole thing just gets blown to pieces, you know, because life happens. And so I've deleted almost everything that I scheduled at the beginning of this because it was just attempt to control something that was so beyond my control. And then I remember to, to listen and to watch. And it seems like the space that I leave by not puffing up my own importance to this whole process is what finally allows me to be aware of the spirit's movement in the whole thing. People often use this language of God told me to do this, or I heard God's voice. And I remember when I was in high school, I was talking with one of my close friends in youth group and how we personally found that language really frustrating because we didn't know what that meant. And as I got older, I mean, I'm still fairly young. I've figured out for me, it's when I have a very clear thought that is so poignant and I don't second guess it. And so I know it's not something that I could ever come up with on my own, but I also know that it's very different for everyone. And that's the beauty of it. So what is your take on that language of God's call or God's voice? I've had so many great conversations with confirmation students of them just straight up saying, I've never heard God talking to me. What does that even mean? Great important example of the language that we use to talk about God's presence in our lives. There's a book out there called Nudge. And it's a book about evangelism. But for me, I think it really applies to this discernment experience as well, because the way I experience discernment is, is like a gut nudge is the way I talk about it. It's something I kind of feel deep inside of me. It doesn't really have words, but it's sort of this sense of like rightness. <laughs> and often it's something that I don't want to be right, <laughs> right? I, I don't want that thing to be the thing I'm supposed to go to. I think one other piece, which isn't always present in the discernment process, but has been there often enough that it's worth mentioning is a sort of sense of peace when you land on the thing that God is nudging you towards. And there is a sense of not rightness when you're not quite there yet. It doesn't mean that everything all of a sudden feels like settled. I know I've made the right decision. It's just kind of the sense of like, yeah, this is probably where I'm supposed to be. I feel that very deeply, especially that idea of peace. For me, when I feel like I've discerned the right thing, everything else just kind of falls away where it's like, oh yeah, that is something cool that I could do. But something about where I am just feels really natural. That's one of the things that I think is really fascinating as a pastor. Often we use scripture in ways that I feel like doesn't always match our experiences, but every once in a while we'll talk about our experiences and all of a sudden it matches a scripture. And here that sort of seems to me like a piece that passes all understanding, right? That That's that piece that settles in, that doesn't make sense. That's not logical, but it has Mary Claire, you said, everything falls away. And that piece is what remains. That's one of the times where I really feel closest to, to scripture is when yeah. I, I didn't like study scripture so much much that all of a sudden it made sense, but I've lived with scripture long enough that all of a sudden my life was mapped onto scripture in a way that I didn't expect or describe. Speaking of that, what tools for discernment do you find in scripture? I could go on for so long about how the book of Ezra chapters one through six are amazing for discernment. Those six chapters are just fantastic. There are so many things that you can pull out of that lend themselves to 
discerning things. <laughs> like the, it starts out by saying that the Lord stirred up the spirit of this foreign king. And just that image of your spirit being stirred up is really good for discernment. Because I think one of the things that's good but uncomfortable about discernment is that it feels unsettling. You feel unsettled until you land on that thing. And I like that image of the spirit kind of stirring something up. It also works well with the nautical imagery that you're working with, because if you think of uh, Genesis 1, you know, in the beginning, as God's creating, it says that the Ruach Elohim, that, that spirit or that breath of God, Mira Chetet, it, it hovers over the waters, but that could also be like broods, waiting for something to be born and is kind of shepherding that process. So there's a lot with that nautical imagery in Genesis. But back to this Ezra thing, there are just so many moments in that, that scripture in those first six chapters, which really speak to the reality of how unsettling discernment can be and how it's not a pretty process that goes in a direct line, but it goes in fits and starts and you stop it for a while, then you pick it back up. And sometimes even when you land on the thing you've wanted the whole time, part of you still mourns because you had to give something up. You know, you choosing between goods is a, is a bit of a grief process too. Are there any rituals or practices that help you in this process of discernment? Active prayer, actively passive prayer, you know, kind of like just being really honest with God. I, I, I still sometimes struggle with like praying the way I should pray instead of praying the way I actively feel called to pray or, or just speaking to God the things that I actually want or need. And I find that when I'm able to do that, it centers for me what's at stake in the whole process of discernment. When I can finally name to God the thing I want God's help with specifically, it sort of clicks it into place. Even if it doesn't answer it right away, it just allows me to know that that's the thing I'm waiting on. So, so that kind of actively passive prayer of just really being honest with God, um, sometimes through journaling. This is, it sounds a little silly. It's something I'm still like insecure to talk about, but I will have written conversations with God where like I'll write what I say on the left side of the page and on the right side of the page, I'll imagine what God says back. And it's, it's kind of a silly process, but it, it's very comforting. It's quite enlightening at times. Um, it's, you know, bringing me to things that I, I wouldn't have, have thought of or, or experienced otherwise. And then I, I call usually one friend or mentor. I think one of the traps we fall into with discernment is thinking I should talk to a lot of people about this and I should get a lot of people's opinions. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it can be really confusing. So I, I try to, you know, say a prayer or just listen to my gut of who is the person who really might best be able to help me through this and then call them. And I find that that opens up that space for the spirit to nudge me towards who might help me, you know, map out this next part of whatever the process is. So that, and then of course, scripture. Yeah, Professor Ann, I super appreciate you saying that because that feels very liberating because again, it kind of gets back to like, what are our priorities? And I know for me, when I'm going down the path of, well, I should ask this person and this person and this person, then my priority is what are people thinking what decision should I make because of what other people think and not like listening to myself. So I fall into that trap all of the time. Well, and the Quaker tradition has this thing called the clearness committee where it's not one person, but it's a very small group of people where if you have a very significant decision, you actually bring them together and then you invite them to almost interrogate you. 
to ask for your sense of what, why is this something that you want to do or what is it that you feel called to in this? And so that you invite them to be those kind of, not just like, what do you think I should do? But you invite them to actually become that kind of, in, in your uh, example, professor, and that kind of voice of God in mm -hmm. speaking into us a different kind of way. And then again, that's not like, I need to ask my 38 closest friends, but it's a kind of core group of three or four folks maybe who would be the ones who are going to help you through every one of those times. Yeah, I think that's great. And, and I think what the common thread kind of that I hear in all of us, what we're talking about is what helps you access kind of that deepest core of yourself. You know, for me, it's writing. I've been writing since I was a little, little kid and I almost cannot do life. I, I not almost, I cannot do life without writing my way through it. Um, for other people, it'll be, it'll be painting, it'll be baking, it'll be running, you know, it's what, what is that thing that connects you and helps you articulate what's going on in your deepest core, um, because that's where the spirit is ultimately guiding you. So as you've noticed, we use a lot of map imagery regarding discernment. So how do you draw your maps? And also, who are some of those people that you go to to help with your map making? So this is a new metaphor for me for discernment. I haven't really thought about discernment as a map before. So I feel a little bit like my map uh, that I have in my mind when it comes to discernment is like that meme of a, a great huge math problem where in the middle there's a bunch of scribbles and it says, and then a miracle happens. And then there's the solution on the other side. The other piece that, that comes to mind for me is actually the Marauder's Map from Harry Potter, where you tap on it and you say, I solemnly swear that I am up to no good. And it appears. What's so great about that is there's this, there's this active moment and then there's this passive reception of the map appearing to you. And, and the map is living, it's moving, pieces on it, pieces of it are changing and you have to respond to that and, and kind of run with it. So there's this active sense and then this revelation that you have to wait for too. You asked too about what people help you guide your map making discernment. This sounds really trite, but it's the ones I trust the most. You know, it, it can't just be people that you really like or people that you've had a long history with. And for me, that trust not only means, you know, will they, will they hold this in kind of confidence, but will they tell me honestly what they think? One of the hardest parts of friendship or of relationships is when you see someone going down a path that they're super excited about and you're like, I don't think this matches with your values. Or I see this ending in a place that, you know, isn't maybe good for you. And I, there are a select few of people who I know will be honest with me, and I, I love them for that. And and those are the people that I that I go to in those times. Would you tell us a little bit about your story of discerning away from congregational ministry and into academia? So I always wanted to be a pastor. My dad is a Lutheran pastor. I grew up moving around, so the church was like it was my home. It was familiar. It's you know something that was similar no matter where we moved to. And so that was the plan ever since like middle school. So I was going to be a pastor and got to seminary. And of course, before you get there, you have to do this long psych evaluation. And it was after I did all of the forms and all of the talks with the psychologist and all that stuff. It was the very last thing this person says to me. He's flipping through my paperwork and he said, you know, you can be a pastor if you want. Your, your skills and gifts line up with it. But have you ever thought about being a teacher? Because that's really where your passion seems to lie. And I just had this like gut drop moment of like, no, that's not the plan. <laughs> 
which was, you know, just kind of silly. But but I went to seminary sort of with this idea that it was the plan, but but was it actually what fit? I met my husband in seminary. We got married and we're serving not in the same call, but in nearby calls, had our two kids out there. But I remember as I graduated seminary, there were a couple of professors who said to me, have you ever thought about doctoral work? I, I think you might be good at it. And so I was just kind of like, oh, okay, that's, that's interesting. People are actively asking me about that. And the longer I was in the parish, the more those thoughts would start to come up. And I remember talking with Professor Dirk Lang, who's a worship professor at Luther Seminary. And I just asked him, what would you think about this? I've been thinking about this more. And I remember him looking at me and saying, if you're thinking about doctoral work, the question is not if, but when, what's your timeline? And it was just such a like rubber hits the road moment. So I had a couple other conversations with other professors who were also supportive and and then I felt like I needed to call my bishop. And I just sort of laid out this idea that I had, this nudge I'd been feeling, these conversations I'd been having with professors. And we started talking about it and started, you know, throwing around some ideas. And we talked for about 20 minutes. And then Bishop John said, I feel the need to just stop this conversation and say, we're all talking about this as if it's going to happen. And none of us have articulated that we think this should happen. We're talking about this very naturally as if it's, you know, of course going to happen. And so that was, again, just sort of that reaffirmation of this internal pull I was feeling, which seemed to be affirmed at every step by this external call. But, you know, I was married and we had two small kids. And so there's a lot of decisions that go into that process. And there's a lot of big, big questions. And it feels like there's a lot at stake with all of that. So I, uh, my husband is incredibly supportive. He is he, I think, believes in my call to be a professor almost more than I do. He's just on board with it 100%. And so he was willing to move wherever we needed to go. And, and you know, again, with the understanding, this is a, like a five-year deal, so it's not forever. That's great. So applied, I got uh, second interviews at each place. So flew to Emory for that second interview. And it was just like, oh, I just fell in love. Loved the campus. I loved the faculty. I, I liked the other people I was interviewing with. I loved the other students who were there already. I just, I remember standing on this one place in a courtyard and looking out over the courtyard with the, the roofs of these academic buildings and these trees and the sidewalks and just thinking, I want this so badly. Like I, I wanted it with every fiber of my being. You talk about values and priorities and who you are. I was doing the tour of the Emory campus and two things happened. First of all, they took me to the third level of the library and it has the largest collection of Reformation manuscripts in North America. And I've been and, there. It's so oh my, cool. Oh my gosh. So on display on that day, Pastor Drew, was a small catechism with Luther's handwriting in the marginalia. I was like, hello, come and join us in this amazing Reformation space, you little Lutheran at a Methodist school. I mean, it was just like so funny that it happened to be out that day. But the other piece was um, Emory also has a really sweet museum. And it also has the largest collection of Egyptian mummies in North America. And what they have in this museum is a very, very old mummy. And one of the ways they know that is because it's not standing in the typical position of kind of being upright or flat with arms crossed. It's laying on its side and it's curled up in a fetal position as if sleeping. So it's, it's a very tender way to put a body that has completed its journey here on earth. And I had just performed a, a funeral 
before I came on this trip. And I, I, I walked in that room and I saw this mummy and I thought, oh my gosh, the business that I'm in right now is the business that people have been in for millennia, which is, is taking care of the bodies of the ones they have loved and of, of tending and stewarding lovingly those bodies. And it just felt like such a connection between this academic pull and this pastoral sense that I had about what I wanted to do and why I wanted to do it. So, so there were all these like internal calls at Emory of wanting to be there so badly. I go to Princeton for my second interview and they had this like courtyard of young family stuff where it was a playground. There were four apartment buildings around it. There were grills all around it. So huge pull on being a mom and on wanting to provide for our family in this, but not quite as much that internal pull of like, I want to study here. I want to be here. This is where it feels like my call is, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I went back to my husband after both those interviews and I was like, it feels like I have the choice between what's best for me as a scholar and what's best for us as a family. Like, it feels like those are the two choices. You talk about two goods, you know, how do you choose between that? And, and if I want to choose the scholarly one, does that make me a bad mom and a bad wife? And does that mean I am prioritizing my work above our family and all of that kind of stuff? And, and my husband, bless him, he said, you got to go where you're called we'll figure all the rest of it out. So I chose Emory and with major massive amounts of guilt because there's real pressure, ladies, on moms, on women to feel like you're always prioritizing your family above your work in a way that means one is at a loss while the other one wins. And it doesn't have to be like that, but that's the thing we're, we're kind of, you know, encultured to believe. The funniest part about all of this is I, I accepted being at Emory we had no job. There's no student housing at Emory. We had no idea where the kids were going to be at school. We had no idea if we'd get a house, if I'd have to move there and we'd be separated for a semester or so. In the matter of a weekend, one weekend, we flew to Atlanta. Tim did an interview with the one church in all of Metro Atlanta that was open for call. One church. I said, honey, I love you, but get this call. Do whatever you have to do. The next day, we put in an offer on a house. And not only did he get the call, but we got that house. And it has turned into being the most supportive place you could have imagined for our family. This church is amazing and supportive of Tim, of me and my studies, of our children. Like, it absolutely ended up being a place that nurtured all of us and allowed all of us to thrive but it sure did not seem that way when I was making the choice. Yeah. And professor, and I appreciate you sharing so much and we are beyond grateful that you are here in a part of this community and helping us to grow and thrive and all of the things. But I think such a huge part of what I heard in your story is this incredible sense of pull. And I think that's such a strong aspect of discernment that we tend, because it's like a buzzword, we tend to jump over it, but like discernment is so embodied and it's like pulling at our heartstrings in a way that we can't turn back and turn around. So thank you for like clarifying that and bringing that up for us. Cause it's, it's, it's hard to listen to our bodies in a society that doesn't allow us to. And I think like it's a liberating thing that we can do as like people in this community together. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you brought up the embodied aspect of it, Sammy. I think that's absolutely, absolutely right. So the next question is, 
how do we make sure that the concept of discernment isn't just for people working church jobs? Oh, yeah, that's such a great question. My first answer is kind of uh, kind of snarky, but it's true because not everyone in the Bible was a church leader. <laughs> in fact, very few of them actually were, um, especially if you look at a book like like Genesis. They were just people. They were people that, that God intended to use, that God was super, super active in their lives. Abraham and Sarah is a great example. There's some priestly overtones to Abraham with the like um, Melchizedek and, and Lot story. Um, he's called a prophet at one point, but Prophet probably just means like special to God at that point. It's not actually the institution of prophecy that we think of later. For the most part, Abraham and Sarah were regular people. And what I love so much about their call story by God, which often gets kind of swept under the rug, is in Genesis 12, you know, verses 1 through 4, God shows up to Abraham and says, Lech lecha, you know, go from here. I will be with you. I will give you descendants. I will give you a great name. I will give you a land. And then the fourth part, which is so important, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God is moving in these people's lives to bless all of the families of the earth. And they're nothing special. They are just people. So, so I think the first thing that we need to do is, you're absolutely right, Mary Claire, stop talking about this so much just in the context of church jobs and, and talk about it just in lives, in people's lives. The other thing that I really love is, Mark Colden was a professor at Luther Seminary, and he has a great little article called Luther on Vocation. And what I love is, is he talks about vocation, is that all of us, our vocation is the same. It is to be a baptized child of God. It is just that. It is pure and simple as that. And then we live out that vocation in various offices. So we're all called to be children of God, and then we express that vocation through our experiences, through our relationships, through our careers, all of these different offices that we hold in our lives. But I really like that because I think, you know, like you said, it takes this question of vocation and discernment out of the churchy realm and put it, it puts it where it belongs, which is in all of our lives. So speaking of discernment manifesting in areas of our lives that aren't just our careers and such, how does discernment play a role in your family life? It's so big. It's so big. I thought being married was hard. Then I became a parent. <laughs> it's like watching a younger version of yourself run around that you have very real little control over and only influence. And even that influence sometimes is very, very small. So that aspect of listening and watching, like I talked about earlier, are so essential. It's, it's essential to being a good partner in a relationship. It's absolutely essential to being a parent because you can do all of the best practices that you want if it doesn't match with who your kid is and what they're going through right now, it's going to mean squat. So you have to, to listen, you have to watch. And again, the hardest times I have with my kids are before I bring it to God. When I am trying to fix something or to solve something in my relationship with my kids by myself, again, usually without even talking to my husband about it, because first you overfunction. No, first you freak out, then you overfunction, you know, finely tuned process that I have here. So that, that listening and that watching and that, you know, map being revealed to me is just so essential. So before we let you go, I want to give you an opportunity to plug your own pod because you do this thing in your own life. So can you tell us a little bit about your podcast? 
I do. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. I appreciate that. I have a podcast that I co-host and co-created called First Reading. And the website is just firstreadingpodcast.com. And it, it does a lot of um, what I hoped to do in the first place when I went to grad school. It's a podcast about preaching the Old Testament lectionary readings. And um, I do it with a friend, Tim McNinch, who's also a, a Hebrew Bible candidate at, at uh, Emory University. And we both feel a very deep call to academic study of the Bible and a very deep call to making that academic study useful and relevant and a resource to people who are in the pews or who are going to be preaching in the pulpits. So it's a weekly podcast. There's, there's many episodes. And then once a month, we get a guest scholar to come in. And it's been such a delight. We have um, Jewish scholars. We have Black womanist, womanist scholars. We've had Asian American scholars. Um, we've had just wonderful people who are so dang smart. I mean, I just feel like a fangirl on some of these episodes. Um, and so very, very caring about how this matters, how this stuff matters to people's lives. And our final question that we're trying to ask all of our guests at the end, if we have time, is what do you wish you knew about vocation as a kid? I think I wish that I knew that the life-giving, meaningful work that I would be called to was not actually dependent on me. That it was something that would not necessarily happen to me as a passive object, as a passive receiver, and not that it was a plan that had been written before time that I was to follow, but that as natural as my body loving walking and loving the experience and feeling of sun and of wind, a vocation was something that would be kind of like that. It would be something that my body would love in you know, my embodied mind, my embodied heart, my embodied whatever it might be. It, was, it would be something that would feel that way. And that doesn't always mean easy. And that doesn't always mean pretty and it doesn't really always mean fun either but it is something to which each of us are called and as each of us has different bodies that will look different for each of us this conversation with professor rachel wren has really struck me not just as valuable but as timely for our conversations around discernment because we talk about discernment as prioritizing your opportunities. Another way to say that is we are evaluating the discoveries that we have made. So here in this 40 faith process, we make discoveries, but then once we've made discoveries, we also need to evaluate them. We need to assess them. We need to consider how they relate to our lives. But what Professor Ren reminded us of, which is so, so, so important, so powerful, so necessary, is that you're not always evaluating bad against good. Those are the easier evaluations to make. That's the easier discernment to do. It's the good against good that can sometimes be so intimidating, so difficult in this discernment process. But what that shouldn't be for us is something that prevents us from discerning. We shouldn't simply flip a coin as though God is not in the process, but instead with that wonderful scholar of the Hebrew Bible in mind, we're reminded that the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters, not just hovering as though it's uninterested in the parts of our lives, but that the Spirit of God is gathering and holding in the discernment that we are doing. This is not just inactive waiting. This is active 
anticipation. So discernment is something that we do not on our own, but something with God. We evaluate these opportunities on our values, our identities, yes, but also with God's values and God's identity in mind. So it doesn't have to be scary, though it is certainly holy. God is in the process through your prioritizing. God is in the process through your evaluating. God is in the process through your engagement with others to confirm the things that you have considered, the priorities that you have set. So my hope for us as we hear the stories from Professor Wren, as we consider the value that we have in ourselves, the value that we have in God, and how that value relates to the things that we discover, the opportunities that we encounter is that we would feel the spirit of God brooding over us as both a protective and a commissioning force, protecting us from the worst, but inspiring us, commissioning us to take risks for what is next. So what's now? God is calling us to something holy and sacred in the moment of discernment. And what's next? That's where God is leading as a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. Thank God that the spirit broods over our discernment, helping us to prioritize who God is calling us to be now and next. Now Next is brought to you by the Center for Faith and Learning at Capital University. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, this episode was recorded remotely over Zoom. Funding for Now Next is thanks to the generous Philip N. Knudsen Endowment and Lutheran Campus Ministry. Our co-hosts are Drew Tucker, Mary Claire Hunkel, and Sammy DiBiasso. Our podcast producer is yours truly, and our seaworthy theme music, Fiddle DD, is by Shane Ivers. <laughs>